Hi everyone, this is Andy with another one of these one-off interviews we've been experimenting with on the show. Uh, this week, uh, we have a recording of a, of a conversation I had with my friend, Merlin Chowquinian. We talked on August 21st. Uh, he's the ass- an assistant professor of the social medical sciences at Columbia School of Public Health. And we discuss how to think about racism and the category of race in the United States, not as a natural and self-evident category, such as, you know, I am of the Chinese race, or you are of the white race, or you are of the black race. Not like that, but as something with a deeper history and a deeper ideological function that is inseparable from political economy in the U.S. Uh, We also talk about how to think about class at a deeper level than our common sense conceptualizations typically allow, and the sort of ongoing debate about race versus class in both academic and political circles. These are all ideas that Merlin's articulated in a handful of pretty interesting articles on the language of quote-unquote racial disparity that he's co-authored with the political theorist Adolf Reed, who's at uh, the University of Pennsylvania. And one last thing is, after our conversation, I was thinking about how Merlin and I did not really talk about politics and strategy. We had perhaps a predictable conversation between two academics about how to analyze things, how to understand things better. But I do think some of the claims we were making do have some sharp implications for thinking about politics and how to move forward. So for instance, if we accept the idea that racial ideology historically played a role in legitimizing and naturalizing the status quo and its inequalities, specifically the Jim Crow system and slavery before that, then that function of racial ideology is something we would need to confront and wrestle with if we would also like to use racial categories and racial identity, you know, blackness, whiteness, yellowness, whatever, if we would like to mobilize that kind of racial identity for some sort of forward-looking, liberatory, emancipatory goal as well. Now, this isn't to say that we have to abandon, abandon these categories necessarily, but it's something obviously we should not be too naive about. And that's just me talking, that's not Merlin. Uh, so with that said, um, on to the interview. Time to say goodbye. How are you doing today? I'm doing all right. I'm a little nervous. I did uh, a, cu- <laughs> a couple of these in my life, not a lot of them, but the last one I did, I got yelled at for not having like the right vocal rhythm, I guess. I was really? told to talk way more slowly and to sound more upbeat, so I, I had no idea. <laughs> I really had no idea what, what goes into a podcast and how much Wait. work it is. I was actually, I was just thinking this morning, you had a radio show at Wabar, yes. the Barnard radio station. That's right. And you had that for like the entire time, four years in college or? Yeah, mostly four years. Yeah, most of the four yeah. years. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I don't know. There's something about podcasting that's apparently different. It just seems like there's a slower, more serious rhythm that seems to be yeah. demanded of people because it's not live typically. So uh yeah. that 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 kind of unnerved me and i got i got i got <laughs> i got scared and i got scared about coming on here as a as a result you had noam chomsky on that i remember i right? had noam chomsky i had janine garofalo i had <laughs> you know i had a bunch of people on and it really was a testament to the power of narcissism and ego like people just love invitations and ex- <laughs> ex- accepting <laughs> invitations even to like like some, you know, ratty college uh, kids show. So 
uh yeah it was kind of a fun time and i never i never revived it again i don't know why but uh yeah it's... uh yeah we, we maybe we should try to invite noam chomsky into our show <laughs> yeah no he's uh, old now though man he talks i know <laughs> yeah. we could just email him and ask him whether he agrees with us or not <laughs> uh so i've wanted to talk to I've, I've been thinking for a while to bring merlin onto this show merlin is um has studied u.s history and has studied these debates over race and class for a while um, his his particular focus is, um, would you call it the history of public health or? Yeah, I would say so. History of public yeah. health, history of medicine, health policy, and so forth. It might be actually useful just to kind of um, let listeners know like who you are and what your background is. And I think the question I I'm also curious to know is you know you're for the most part I would say you your research has been about U.S. history and the history of racism in terms of like white black racism. But you're an Asian American from California, um, not that different from my background. So um, I think maybe some people might be curious, like why you decided to go in that direction versus, you know, like Asian American studies or something like that. Yeah, no, that's an excellent question. Um, I would say the biography plays some role, but I don't think it was a conscious decision, to be honest with you, although there are certainly um, moments from growing up that I kind of look back to as a reference point, I think the most would be, uh, the most important would be the Los Angeles, uh, you know, the word riot is a, a charged sure. word. I've actually been wrestling with uh, whether it's better to call it a riot, a rebellion, an uprising. There's actually pros and cons um, to each of these terms. But uh, what happened in Los Angeles in 1992, whatever term you use, has always kind of been in the back of my mind, both, both just understanding the roots of that from the 1965 Watts riot to 1992, mm. how immigrants fit into the picture, because uh, this occurred at a time when immigration to uh, not just the United States, but Los Angeles in particular, uh, was quite high and the immigrant story, particularly of Korean uh, uh, yeah. uh, grocers and small business owners in South Central Los Angeles, we all know, uh, played an important role uh, yeah. and, and a complicated role in those events. Yeah, I mean, let's back up. Like, who, where's to be you know racist where are you from where are you really from <laughs> i am from uh actually a very interesting uh cluster of suburbs so i am from los angeles uh people can't see this but i'm wearing a lakers uh t-shirt a, a sh what they what they call a jersey that is a a, a fusion of a shirt and a jersey for uh, D'Angelo Russell, uh, uh, one of our high draft picks who didn't quite work out in, in Los Angeles, although we wish him well in uh, his current team, uh, Minnesota. But uh, yeah, I'm from the greater Los Angeles area and a cluster of suburbs called uh, the San Gabriel Valley. Um, this is right. actually the largest concentration of Asian Americans in the entire country. It completely, yeah. uh, completely dwarfs even the Bay Area and parts of New Jersey or even um, part, parts of New York. So for, were most of your friends over there, my understanding is that it's mostly Chinese diaspora who live there. Is that fair? Or is it also Korean and Filipino, Vietnamese? Or In San Gabriel Valley, it's actually remarkably diverse, although um, these this, the suburbs that comprise San Gabriel Valley are interesting because you can kind of create a an economic pecking order. And okay. um, I, uh, so different different national origins sometimes slot into different 
um, suburbs, depending on on the economics, the the kind of average okay. economics of a particular group. So, who are your neighbors mostly then? Mostly Chinese, mostly Chinese, but also a fair amount of Taiwanese uh, yeah. as well. So you wind up going to school on the East Coast, you know, with with me and both an undergrad and grad, and over there. We've talked about this a little bit on the show that the kind of conception of race on the East Coast is quite, you know, 19th century, we could say, or early 20th century, like very much kind of still working through basically the, 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 the I don't know, the tra- I don't know if trauma is the right word, right? But the aftermath of, of slavery and emancipation and uh, the, the relationship between the US, uh, white groups and black groups on the East Coast. Um, and like, I, I remember like, there was really no presence for Asian American studies, for instance, um, on the on these East Coast schools. Um, I wound up doing Asian history, history of China, and I still have ambivalence about like why did I do this? Why am I studying <laughs> right. my my people? <laughs> right. And maybe I should have just studied like U.S. history because I could actually feel more organic connection to this country. Uh, just you know, on a day to day basis. Um, did you? Yeah, I mean, to get to the, back to the question we were asking, talking about earlier. Did you consciously think like I don't want to do Chinese history or Asian American history or is it, is it somehow more interesting or I don't know if liberating is the right word to study um, like 19th century Midwest United States as opposed to like 20th century San Gabriel Valley? It's a good question. I'm not sure. I think like you, there was probably some subconscious uh, things, perhaps. Um, I mean, because you grew up in Washington State, right? Like near yeah. the Seattle area. Right. Um, but I grew up in a kind of biracial environment that was very, very strong and could be stifling, um, just kind of yeah, on a day-to-day sure. basis. Uh, my school was essentially white and Asian for the most part, like I would say 95% of our student body was that. And I didn't quite quite fit into either group particularly gracefully, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, do you find it kind of liberating to come to the East Coast where the dynamics were so different or just curious? I sort of did, but that's only because even though greater Los Angeles is extremely kaleidoscopic, when it comes to race and ethnicity, I didn't head out to greater Los Angeles much when I was a kid. So when I yeah. when I got to New York and got exposed to a similar kind of panorama in New York City, uh, that was certainly different from the, the day-to-day experience I had in Los Angeles. And yeah, that probably pushed me uh, towards studying uh, certain things that I had never kind of uh, thought about yeah. before but i you know the the reason the real reason why that i ended up studying what i did was a, a series of random accidents so uh-huh. uh, i was intending to study statistics or applied math or something like that and uh didn't really just jive with the kinds of kids who were majoring in that they <laughs> just weren't very fun so uh so surprise surprise yeah so <laughs> Yeah, I, I ended up um, I ended up switching and exploring other majors, uh, and ended up doubling in history and sociology. And the thing with history was uh, I was really enjoying the history classes and uh, got really into, in particular, classes that were taught by the nineteenth-century historians at at Columbia, uh, Barbara Fields, uh, Eric Foner. Uh, Betsy, right. Betsy Blackmar, but the thing that kind of made it hard for me to think of myself 
pursuing this further was that I had no, I had nothing I felt I could ever add to the Civil mm-hmm. War or Reconstruction. <laughs> you know, I was like, For sure. what, what more is there to say? Until I took a class in the history of public health. And it was history of public health, but not just history of public health, but history of public health and African-American health in particular, African-American health and health reform movements and so forth. And it was taught by a wonderful professor uh, named Sam Roberts, uh, who, mm, who is still yeah. still teaching at Columbia and I think has a podcast of his own. But I think the, oh, yeah. yeah, I think the, <laughs> Everyone has a everyone's podcast. got a podcast. Uh, but I, I think the point that was quite profound to me that Roberts impressed upon me was that a lot of institutions, whether we're talking about higher education or or medicine or finance or in this case public health at, yeah. at their core aren't just about how sanitation and sewage and quarantines etc come about but are also very embedded centrally in the racial hierarchy and the gender hierarchy of the United States and it's quite impossible actually I think to tell a fully fleshed history of the history of yeah. public health while ignoring those things. And so that kind of that kind of grabbed me on two fronts. And so that's kind of how I got into yeah. to race and trying to explore the role of race and racism right. in, in a number of institutions, particularly right. public health. And one, and one thing I'm curious about is when most discussions about race and racism in the U.S., um, you know, for obvious reasons about racism against uh, black and the black population, the former slave population, and kind of the aftermath of all that in the 20th century. Um, but is there, do you think there is a reason like Asian Americans might find this discussion like particularly interesting, even if it's not about their group, but through perhaps analogy or comparison, right? There is a sense of like, um, we, we can kind of, uh, we get, we get, we get what it's like to be like a racial minority mm. in this country. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I think the the logic of racialization and the stigmatization that often accompanies uh, being othered, there are certainly uh, commonalities. There are also some pretty key differences, I, right, I think. Course, yeah. um, so absolutely. Uh, and I think uh, more Asian Americans <laughs> uh, should, should, should study that. Um, I also sure. understand, you know, I teach at a public health school where we have a very sizable Asian population, both international students, but also people like you and me who are born in the United States. And they sometimes wonder when, like I actually teach a lecture on racism that all the students have to uh, take uh, in, 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 in their first year. And a lot of them come up to me and say, well, you know, I, where do I fit in this whole yeah. thing? And I, I think that ambiguity is something that's interesting. That I've been, yeah, I've been thinking about how do how do I address it both in the scholarship, but in the teaching, and just generally how I, I think about these things. Uh, there's this cliche thing that a lot of race and ethnicity scholars uh, have been writing since like the 1990s, which is that the black and white binary is no longer tenable, and we right. have to think about how to transcend sure. the binary because if you look at the census, it's really clear that um, right. this is not the same nation that it was in, say, 1950, 1940, etc. Yeah. But I think we're still actually wrestling with how to do that well. Uh, For sure. You know, yeah. do we, are, do, is, is transcending the binary really just 
tacking on like an Asian chapter to your book right. on Los Angeles or having an Asian section. I think no, right? You don't want right. to just do that. So uh, the, the person I think who has done it most effectively is the political scientist Claire Kim. And okay. uh, she's, yeah, she's called very recently for something that she calls a sociometry of race. And she basically says that racialization occurs along two key axes. Uh, one is just anti-blackness, uh, uh, white supremacy, but the other is right. anti-outsider, anti-foreigner, uh, right. and so forth. And I think Asian Americans uh, fit kind of on uh, in, in, in you know, depending on your particular case somewhere along right. both axes. And so that's oh, okay. and so what she means by sociometry is that race is a relational thing. You can't just study right. Asian Americans or. Exactly. Or Latinx or whatever in isolation, but you have to see that these uh, these processes of racialization have all been connected in some way, and sometimes there's a lot of similarity with uh, anti-black racism. Sometimes um, nativist logic, though, has its own kind of separate um, yeah. separate quality to it. So I think we're so, all working on that. Yeah, yeah. We're all working through this forever. <laughs> Your student, the students who come up to you, you're saying they're mostly Asian diaspora. Do are there Latino students and Black students who are also kind of um, have questions about like how does to what extent the sort of classic racial paradigms work in the 21st century? Uh, for sure, absolutely. I would say because, and I'm totally guilty of this. I only got 60 minutes in my lecture, so yeah, it, yeah, sure. it is focused much more on a binary paradigm. And to the extent uh, I transcend it, I talk a little bit about immigration, um, but uh, not with a particular focus on Asian Americans. So I would say right. I, I get it the most from them. But yeah, no, certainly people have queried that. And people have also asked about where is the the Native American presence in, in, right. in this too. And uh, that's been something that uh, I've had to think through as well. Yeah. So I think um, just knowing what you write about and the fact that you are in a school of public health, the particular aspect of race and racism that you're interested in is the sort of uncomfortable part of this country's history where race is kind of scientized, right, or turned into a biological explanation, especially in the context of like medicine and like do black bodies and white bodies have different genes and different organs and things like that, which, you know, we... I think at first listen, most of our listeners think, oh, that's absurd and no one would believe that. But I think a lot of the work that you've done is to kind of show how a lot of those 19th century beliefs actually still inform the way that medicine is done today or is talked about uh, in really subtle ways. Is that fair to say? Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I guess your listeners are an enlightened bunch because, you know, <laughs> sometimes I'm looking on the Internet at message boards and things like that, and I see debates come up about this and people who are not at least flaming at the mouth racist still right. kind of usually in a more casual offhand way right believe very much that there is something called chinese blood or you know <laughs> yeah. or or that different body parts on average or kidney function or lung function etc are different uh in, yeah. in different groups and then that the different groups in some ways uh, you can define biologically. Now, these are not like Charles Murray bell curve racists who believe right. in racial hierarchy, but you don't have to believe in racial hierarchy 
to still hold this problematic view that right. that there is uh, there are these reified, entrenched, hardened racial quote unquote differences that are biologically uh, rooted. So I, I think it's yeah. actually quite commonplace. And one thing that uh, has actually been alarming is since the the advent of the Human Genome Project and more recently developments like just consumer genetic ancestry testing uh this stuff has come back uh, uh yeah exactly yeah. Like 23andme type stuff yeah right? 23 you know and people kind of going on twitter and saying yeah i just took 23andme and turns out i'm quote unquote 23 percent you know european or right. or i'm 50 percent asian after all and and yeah. this kind of language is reviving this. But I, I think there's a problem with it, too, because okay. uh, there there are lots of technical methodological critiques of these tests in terms okay. of accuracy. Um, um, uh, for one, they're the the way they identify and give you those percentages is based on like a sample of 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 genetic information that they've collected from people who identify as those particular ethnic categories and right, right, right. and they kind of keep expanding this library but it's still a sample so i think that's yeah. that's number one the first problem um the second problem with it though is it's again re-perpetuating this notion that race and ethnicity are things that you can identify through genetic sequencing and that's or the presence of say a genetic mutation and that is wrong (laughs) like the the premise is wrong so uh i worry about the mischief this is causing and also uh that it's actually overturning uh or at least uh undermining a lot of the what you might call a social construction approach to to race that is the idea that race is ultimately a fiction and a narrative that came up to justify usually pretty bad things and and it's not this biological natural essence at all so i worry about these tests so the um immediate kind of thing as a as a sort of transition to talk about this has been in the news a little bit there was an article in the new york times last week um, the and we'll put a link to it on the podcast. The headline is a black a black Marxist scholar wanted to talk about race. It ignited a fury. It was a it was a kind of an insular disagreement that we're not going to get into, but it, it was a debate about um, involving the DSA in 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 New York and different sides are arguing about you know should the left focus on race versus class and that's kind of how the article put it. And this is just the latest in a long series of, it seems like, for now, a whole decade of, you know, articles, politicians, and the media talking about this race versus class debate. I think it probably dates as, perhaps in the public consciousness, dates back to obviously the first kind of wave of Black Lives Matter protests in 2014 and 15. It gets used, in my opinion, quite cynically, right during the Clinton versus Sanders campaign. Mm -hmm of 2016 like intersectionality means like nothing like it's not just all about class you you know old-fashioned uh marxists um and then you know it's just kind of come up intermittently uh you know with the twitter left the last few years so our job our, our goal here is not to take sides in this debate and um but it does so happen that merlin is a co-author with one of the figures involved but we should also be clear that merlin's not here to speak on behalf of his co-author uh, his name is Adolf Reed. Uh, Merlin, you know, is his own person with his own perspective, as hopefully is 
kind of made clear at this point of the interview. Um, and so I wanted to take this article. What struck me when I read this article wasn't so much like this side is wrong and this side is right, but the way that the author was framing the debate. And I thought maybe what we could do on this podcast is give some depth to it. I think the journalist did a pretty good job, I think, of, of summarizing it. He obviously did his work interviewing people and kind of sussing out some of the contours of this debate. I think what we want to um, begin with is, you know, the article begins this way and all throughout it has this framing that this debate is about should we focus on race or should we focus on class, right? And I think if you talk to any academic or anyone who's like taken, you know, a class on this stuff, they probably could repeat the mantra that it's not about race versus class. It's not about race versus class, uh, which raises a question for me. If everyone has probably imbibed this basic mantra before, why is it so tempting um, for people to kind of pitch the debate as race versus class? And why do you think it's so tempting for like politicians you know, who, who, who don't like Bernie Sanders, basically, <laughs> to use race as a, as a wedge issue against, against class issues. I, I'm, do you have any thoughts on that other than, um, like, why, why, why is it so hard to move beyond the race versus class? Yeah, I have, I have a few thoughts on that. I, you know, we might want to just kind of nibble on this question uh, yeah, slowly. It's a huge and, question. And, and yeah. kind of, it is, you know, it's the, the, the relationship to, between race and class. And, you know, one thing we might talk about also is what class actually is because uh, right. there's <laughs> there's a lot of colliding definitions I've, I've seen in following this debate but this is a very old debate in many ways uh, yeah. both on the left but just uh, in general, you go back to the mid 20th century and uh, read what f figures like uh, Oliver Cromwell Cox or Polly Murray or Du Bois or Ralph Bunch. This is something there. There's there's been a lot of ink spilled <laughs> over many generations. Uh, I think one reason actually why we get these kind of reductive debates where people are saying, well, you know, it's overwhelmingly class or it's overwhelmingly race is actually something that's happened in the academy in the past mm. uh, 40, 40 or 50 years. And that is, and it's actually had a revival too, I think, in the past 10 years, which is the dominance of, of quantitative research in the social sciences, and particularly mm. e econ what I would call econometric analysis, where you take a bunch of variables, race variable, class variable, maybe a geography variable, you pull the lever and then you get these like kind of <laughs> convenient the regression analysis, uh, regression right. analysis. And this has, right. this has become very fetishized. I right, think right. in the, in the Nate silver era where, yeah, yeah. or, you know, the money ball era where we can take a baseball player and spit out right. how much, you know, of a advantage you have. If right. you pay this baseball player, how much a return you're getting based on how many RBIs they hit or whatever. So we're, yeah. we're, we're in, this kind of quantitative data uh -huh. uh, glorification kind of world. And I think that world still existed even before uh, right. before the Nate Silver emerged. Um, just kind of the re regression analysis, I think, is yeah. very much the huh. dominant form for studying yeah. social stratification and uh, economic inequality and racial inequality. Uh, yeah, right. And so the problem with that is there are some virtues to that. One virtue of this kind of analysis is you can um, 
explore the question in a somewhat more systematic way because you're not just uh, interviewing 50 people about their struggles, right. but you actually have a sample of 10,000 people and you can see some mm. broad patterns. And that's really important. So I do some of this research. Uh, many of my colleagues do, certainly at the public health school where I teach. Uh, I'm in no way knocking that, that research. But by itself, sometimes it can lead to some pretty simplistic thinking. Like yeah. You can produce a table that shows, oh, income is the big variable here and, yeah, and therefore right. this proves that it's actually class yeah, yeah. and not race or vice versa you know i control for all the variables and i got race remaining here and there's no other variable that seems to explain the outcome in question yeah. therefore it's race so i think that's yeah. actually one big uh issue and we all know i mean as two asians like we can kind of just <laughs> think about our day-to-day -day lives and how as we traverse um, life sometimes uh, our racial status particularly in an area era, era now where there's some very alarming anti-china right. sentiment and ugly ugly american nationalism in the united states we can see how that affects us regardless of our class status but i think we can also see where our class status actually mitigates against uh some of that sure. you and i are not yeah. going to be facing an ice raid anytime right. soon unlike uh uh many uh, uh chinese immigrants who live in like elmhurst or, or something exactly. like that exactly. so there it's kind of a very kind of subtle intricate relationship and those kinds of studies i find do not capture that they're useful yeah. for a general broad picture but they're not quite good at the intricacy of of yeah. of, of this uh, capturing the intricacy of this relationship yeah i mean I'm not a big baseball fan, but the way you were kind of explaining it reminds me of, you know, we're both basketball fans. You have these like studies that are like, well, what's the, what's the, of these 30 statistics, which one correlates with winning the most? And it'd be <laughs> right. like corner three point percentage or something. And suddenly every team wants to have corner three point shooters. Right. Uh, or like it's in, and I guess in sports, it's a little bit more straightforward. Like how do you even figure out what factors to isolate for? That's like, right. The box score tells you, right. And it's the same box score for 60, 70 years. But you know the real question, like in the real world, outside of the outside of the boundaries of a basketball game, it's not self-evident. How do you choose the factors that you're measuring in the first place? And the choice of those factors, those variables, is itself a political choice. It's a right that that itself could be controversial. And so that's this is a good transition, I think, to talking about the articles you've written recently, or the article you read you wrote in the spring, um, co-authored with Adolf. I had never met him before. I'm just calling. I'm going to call him Adolf. Though. <laughs> That's uh, fine. The one, the one you co-authored with Adolf about COVID disparities, and the under, and I think the theoretical basis of that was another article you co-authored with him in 2012. We'll put links to both of these. That were critical of something I think is quite common. The the kind of article that you'll read in like the Atlantic. I'm probably giving away the article I'm thinking of. <laughs> um, that would say you know, uh, X Y Z phenomenon, which is bad just like un un unquestionably bad is having a is being distributed in a racially disparate manner meaning probably black and latino and poor people are being affected by it more than rich and white and perhaps asian p 
people, right? Do you want to spell out, I think, for our listeners what exactly the objection is? Yeah, I mean, it was some alarm that uh, I'll, I'll circle back to the COVID question and NEJM, the New England article in just a second, but I'll, I'll very quickly go over what gave rise to um, mm. kind of my ongoing discomfort with how some, not all, but how some uh, people who write about racial disparities approach it. So, I mean, you were you were asking me a little bit about my my background and uh, scholarly interests and things like that. Uh, so, I was trained double as both a historian but also as a public health student at the same time. I got a degree in public health and a degree in in history, and so I spent a lot of time in both worlds. And one of the things that was uh, a little frustrating when I was on the public health side is I would attend kind of just end uh presentations where disparities were reported like there would be a new yeah. out- outcome like every couple of weeks so you know what what is you know b- bad surgeries another is like liver disease another is uh, cardiovascular disease and it would kind of just say the same thing every time it would be the same depressing story mm. showing um real big gulfs between not just black and white but usually the other uh, non-white groups as well right. What I didn't get from a lot of these presentations, again, not all, but a lot was any kind of explanation for for why why that mm. was. Uh, it was okay. just sort of assumed, it seemed, that if you put the racial disparity figure out there, that alone would uh, somehow right. self-evidently be something that one should get upset about and be that one sort of knew the underlying cause to. Yeah, that's dangerous because Mm. a racial disparity statistic in and of itself does you can go either way with with that statistic. So, you know, racists like Charles Murray, who believe one in um, the the biological reality of race, but two the hierarchy of races, Mm. he can take that and say this proves that uh that all my all my underlying right. beliefs are true and have real health outcomes like like black black people are born more susceptible to heart disease it's just in their african genes right that's right the other thing that people like murray like to do is uh pro uh they like to pro- propose um, behavioral explanations usually anchored mm-hmm. around some notion of culture so they'll right. like to say that X group's culture and the way they behave, yeah. behave leads them to uh, all sorts of uh, activities that are deleterious to, to health yeah. or good education outcomes or, or, yeah. or whatsoever. So these two kind of very entrenched narratives, biology of race yeah. and, and, and kind of cultural uh, yeah. beliefs that, uh, that are, that are a uh, character that what's a, uh... What's an example of the cultural explanation? Well, if you go back to, uh, say, the welfare debates uh, it, about that kind of led up to actually Bill Clinton's dismantling of yeah. wel- welfare as we know it, there were a lot of analysts, not just on the right, although Murray was one of them, but even people in kind of liberal Brookings Institution type of settings who were... Uh, saying all kinds of just really stereotypical things about people uh, living in single parent households or 
what quote unquote li- <laughs> life suppo- supposedly was like in a very racially segregated area. Um, yeah. The the term this is not this is not my term. This is an actual term that was used very frequently in the 1980s and the 1990s. Uh-huh. Ghetto specific culture. Like, and this is these are not racists using this term. Right. These are like kind of respected. I think most would consider themselves liberal social scientists. So mm-hmm. that kind of rhetoric has been around. So to get back to New England Journal of Medicine, we were concerned that when the New York Times and the LA Times and a number of other news outlets began reporting these dis- disparities figures on COVID, that yeah. if they just simply left them there. And, yeah. and didn't come up with alternate explanations besides yeah. this biology explanation or this cultural behavioral one, we were going to revive some really, we were going to see a revival of some really kind of uh, yeah. uh, toxic narratives that essentially blame the victims of COVID. And so that was the, right. the motivation for, for writing that piece. And have you seen examples? Um, it doesn't seem like it's too mainstream, but examples of people saying like, well, you know, it's kind of, it's too bad this is true, but, you know, black people are making themselves um, black and brown and BIPOC or whatever are, are like, they're behaving in a way that's irresponsible and that's why they're getting it more, getting COVID more than the rich and the white and the Asian populations. Yeah, I'm very glad to see that in the mainstream press and certainly medical and public health journals where there's all sorts of mischief usually around these issues that uh the cultural explanation has it's not been completely absent but it's less frequent than uh you you might you might expect although sometimes it it slips in there you know they'll they'll say just kind of they'll use a kind of innocuous sounding phrase that when you think about it is not so innocuous like behavioral patterns or something right or or ability to adhere to advice or something like like that um i have seen unfortunately a lot more of that genetic stuff Mm. um it wasn't quite as common in the early days of covid but in a number of public health and medical journals uh uh, that have been really more more the medical side of things what's what's that specific argument or the claim they'll say you know these disparities are really awful and here are the figures and here's our discussion section and here's a list of some things that might explain it and one of them is something like genetic differences uh, really which is wow. which is yeah it's it's a wow on one hand but it's not a wow on another hand because in a lot of that that literature previously again in this uh, post-human genome project era mm. people have uh, people have 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 made that claim or at least offered it as a possible explanation so i think we you know we we mainly wanted to ward off that and then a a third thing we wanted to be careful of was something that i think is less talked about although you know all these municipalities and news organizations now have these maps where you can type in your zip code and kind of see everywhere in philly and which zip codes have more prevalence and less prevalence of antibodies or whatever there's certainly one in in new york city and we were worried also like what does it mean when a neighborhood has Mm, exactly you know a a a darker shade a higher percentage and (laughs) what a what 
are, you know, are we are we implicitly stigmatizing that neighborhood, right. particularly place-based stigmatization? And that yeah. I have seen a lot more in in the press. I think the press has been pretty good on the genetic thing. I think the press has been behaving itself on the cultural thing. But I think when it comes to place-based uh, stigmatization, they sometimes unwittingly fall into it when they for example do a profile of like elmhurst or corona and they'll say uh-huh. you know this was ground zero yeah, for, yeah, yeah. Exactly, so I, for sure yeah, so we wanted to kind of guard against uh yeah get, guard against some of that i mean at the very beginning i think this is gone now because it's such a obviously an american disease at this point but at the very beginning that was obviously what was happening with regards to um how people were viewing china chinese Sorry. people of chinese descent there was at the outset these i think it was reported on it just a little bit but there were like rumors that this is a disease that uniquely affects chinese bodies and therefore um, white or black bodies don't have to worry so much about covid which on its face kind of sounds silly but i think that it just kind of testifies or attests to the power of what you were talking about of when you only present the results but not any sort of deeper scientific or historical explanation people can go all different directions with those results, right? And most often, I mean, it's, it's interesting. The point you're making is that we need more context, which sounds really benign, but you're actually, you're not you're not necessarily saying this is just a crime of omission like, or oh, you didn't talk enough about the context. You're actually saying if you don't talk about the context, there's an active harm that could be done um, with, with this type of racial disparity discourse. And in fact, I think what you're also saying is this is basically how race, the category of race and racism um, first emerges, you know, historically, right? Um, where people just kind of look out in the world, they see a lot of inequality between different groups of people, and they come with come up with legitimizing, naturalizing explanations for that. As I mentioned earlier, the, your New England Journal of Medicine article was about COVID specifically. The framework was more spelled out in this other article that you wrote with Adolf in 2011, 2012. And I'm, this, on this point, I'm actually kind of curious also how you came about to co-authoring these articles in the first place. Adolf is, as far as I can tell, um, his work is you know very influential and talked about these days. I remember learning about him from you because you were studying with him at Penn many years ago. And his he's a political theorist and a historian of a sort. He's certainly not, as far as I know, like a, a public health net historian, right? So right. I guess I'm curious how you guys, what kind of conversations were you guys having? To, that led to you co-authoring an article, um, which, just to give context to the reader, is a broad criticism of a genre of, uh, I would say, social economic writing that talks about the racial disparities, for instance, between the household wealth of black families versus white families. But this can extend to all sorts of areas, public health, policing. Um, the media context of your article was the 2008 financial crisis and how it disproportionately affected um, poor and black families. Um, how, what were the conversations you were having that led you to write this article in the first place? Uh, I think a bunch. Um, there were both uh, ones that were immediate to the crisis and then kind of longer term ones. I mean, one was the kind of presentations I was seeing in my public health education that uh, I, I mentioned, and I would talk about it with him. And uh, Adolf has been uh, a much more trenchant critic than I am of mainstream <laughs> social science and uh, particularly kind of quantitative science that has this kind of plug and crank quality to it. Uh, he wrote kind of a very famous article about this in uh, the, the 1990s. And I believe that it was a very Adolf title. It was something like 
pimping poverty then and now. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I was kind of always talking about the what was the analytic return on these health disparities articles. So we had had this long-standing conversation. Um, but when there was an early raft of reports on racial disparities in the subprime lending market and 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 foreclosure, we wanted to get beyond an explanation that was simply that this is evidence of racism in housing markets QED. So we, <laughs> we, that's true enough, but actually the term racism, when you kind of probe what it is and what kind of mechanisms um, uh, allow it to manifest is actually in some ways can be uh, a term that, is is actually more simplified is more simple and not as useful as uh, as one might think um, in public health we're always drawing these diagrams where we start from a and we go to z and we're trying to figure out all the little arrows um, between that and so in this case we wanted to know what the arrows looked like between um, a to z with z being the racial disparities in subprime mortgage crisis and 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 foreclosure. One of the things yeah. we noticed in re- looking at some of the data was that there was a lot of geographic difference. Um, so it, it, if whatever caused that disparity, it it seemed like it was more pronounced in some areas and much mm-hmm. less pronounced in other areas. That's yeah context and that's kind of a critical context that is often missing from these mostly quantitative studies that simply report the result so what we wanted to do was kind of just push people to think about institutions public policies both present and past the behavior of say mortgage brokers and banks in particular areas um, including micro-level behavior like the discriminatory racist attitudes of the person literally deciding whether to sign off on your loan or not or which loan to offer you to more macro ones like the sort of algorithms that banks used. These are kind of the details that we thought would give you a fully fleshed analysis of why a racial disparity exists, but that was often missing in a lot of that literature. Yeah. I mean, to put it in simple terms, uh, or in my, my, my simple term, my simplistic terms probably, is that you're not, obviously you guys are not denying that racial, that racial gaps exist between, for instance, who gets to own a house in America versus who doesn't. But if you want to push the people who are, the people who say this, right, if you want to push them on exactly why that is as an explanation, most people will wind up with nothing more than, well, people are racist, white people are racist. That's right. Which is not untrue, right? That's, there's definitely some truth to it. But if you stop there, then you don't look at what you're basically talking about is like late 20th century, what a lot of people call neoliberalism or post-Fordism, right? The sort of shrinking or the gutting of the economy in, in the past 50 years um, that you know is, is also like all over the news these days. But it seems like that debate the, the the role of neoliberalism, and I have I feel ambivalent about the term myself, but as a shorthand, is obscured when you make it about well white white people are racist, right? Is, is that a fair way? Yeah, I mean white interpersonal racism and the cognitive biases of white people 
do play a role in everything from occupational uh, segmentation and discrimination policy to uh, the sale of home, the 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 um, the the sale sale of homes and and so forth. Absolutely, but it yeah. it often is not the sole explanation. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it isn't. Right. What I what I would say, and this is me as a historian, and where I probably differ a little bit from Adolf's inclinations as a political theorist. I'm generally uncomfortable with huge, grand uh, theorizations of anything, especially uh-huh. when they're abstract. The place where I'm most comfortable is the concrete case study, right? So yeah. I like being given a time and a place <laughs> and some right. kind of phenomenon to study. And then I like to dig for clues right. that, that will give me a very specific, time-specific, geographic-specific uh, explanation for why that right. phenomenon occurs. But I totally get that, you know, you need some kind of generalizable yeah. propositions as well. So it's it's a te- it's a tension um yeah. I, I think yeah. and a tension I think between when we were writing together too. So rather than race versus class, uh, you would say perhaps the difference would be like abstract theorization which could be boiled down to race, yeah. racism in an abstract sense versus you're not saying class matters more, you're saying that you want to understand the context, but by context, I, I'm assuming most of the time what you're talking about is specifically like political economic factors, right? Not always, but like for the lar- for the most part, especially if you're talking about racial disparities. Um, this will get us into the conversation about like to what extent do things that appear to be purely motivated by racism, um, to what extent those phenomena actually are rooted in like political economy or capitalism, right? What's, what struck me rereading your article was that um, all throughout, you kind of, both of you are, I, you know, you, you co-wrote it, you're constantly reassuring the reader that you're not denying racism and racial difference. You use phrases, I kind of, it kind of jumped out to me. You say, this is obviously correct to say, for instance, that black families were hurt hardest in by the 2008 financial crisis. This is reasonable. This is unobjectionable. This is impossible to deny, which is why I kind of think it's funny that a lot of people characterize you know, your argument and, and Adolf's other writing as sort of saying race doesn't exist or race is like, you know, a, 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 a epiphenomenal, right? A byproduct of class, which is, you know, it's like you guys are saying all throughout that you're not, that's not what you're saying. I think one thing that's also uh, trips up people, and I think it did trip up that New York Times writer who tried to cover uh-huh. the race and class debate is uh, the definition of class that he mm. used. Yep. The definition of class that I think most Americans use if they are probed on it is uh, a pocketbook definition. And what I mean by that is how much money you have in the bank, your wealth, totally. or how much money you have incoming, your 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 income. And maybe mm-hmm. sometimes they'll add education, and maybe sometimes they'll add what your job is, right? Uh, yeah. a, a banker, a, you know, a firefighter, professor, or a professor wh- whatever. And it's... Uh, this is, I think, in some ways, a perfectly acceptable definition of class, but it's also one that's uh, a bit flat and doesn't quite capture where the person fits in what you called a larger political economic order. That is, yeah. uh, is this person a wage earner or a wage giver? 
Uh, yeah. Is this person a land owner, or, or, or is, is, the, is this person collecting the rent, or is this person yeah, yeah, yeah. charging? You're trying charging really hard not to say capitalist and <laughs> which is, which is what we're talking about, right? this sort of classical exactly. political economy description. Yeah, but that's and that's what the Marxists would call relations of production. Relations of production. And but in America, you're not allowed to talk about that, so we use these other terms as a as a substitute, right? That's right, and I I think the this kind of relational approach to class you know you can call it a marxist approach or a marxist adjacent approach whatever is 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 something that uh americans whether they're journalists or social scientists or just everyday people have problems with right it's 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 and so i think trying to restore some of that element to the analysis of race is what what uh why would that why do you think that would um help or how how do you think that would sharpen the analysis? I think it sharpen it because you have to remember how race arose. I think the mm. the consensus account, I think, is that race ultimately, or uh, is yeah, race race arises as a way to justify uh, an inhumane, barbaric labor system called slavery. Mm-hmm. Right? It's right. an I you the. I mean, I always give this race lecture to med students and residents and stuff, and then I say we're not gonna we're not gonna look at anything having to do with the present moment for the first fifteen minutes. We're going back to the the seventeenth century, and they all look at me like, "Why the hell are we doing this?" And then they yeah. they kind of understand it after I think, um, because I, I I point out to them that the this kind of hardened language of what we call race, um, yeah really really started to take shape in this early colonial early american yeah. era and it was an ideological tool that was used to harmonize the yeah. the freedom and liberty talk with with right. the horrible uh with the horrible labor system that was yeah. devoid of freedom and liberty race is the well, link yeah so before we get into this is actually what i did want to talk about eventually but just to make kind of make the connections clear to listeners this is how i worked it out in my head i eventually like we're both historians we both are really familiar with this stuff and we've talked about this stuff offline all the time but to get the to transition to for our listeners i think to make clear who might be having the same reaction as your students why are we talking about the 17th century all of a sudden yeah the i think the to over to boil down your argument perhaps too simplistically is to say something like if you just stick to the level the superficial level of racial disparity you have no better explanation other than this kind of wishy-washy structural racism, systemic racism, which you see like, you know, Nike embraces and, <laughs> right. and the NBA embraces because it's easy, right? And it's easy to right. to think about race as a moralistic, individual, psychological thing. Like that person has personal biases. They have to get over it, right? And what you're saying it leaves out is the specific connection between racism and capitalism or or racism in the class system in the United States. And this, I think, is a little controversial because if you think about what we're saying here, we're saying that racism is not this thing that humans were born with and that the Greeks had, you know, and that the Romans had. I mean, they had some things. Obviously, they had some xenophobic whatever, right? But we're really specifically naming the connection between this modern system, economic system we live with called capitalism that's about several centuries old, however you want to call it, and that it's specific to it. Um, And in order to understand race and racism in the 21st century, it's impossible to not also think about what what is capitalism. 
um, in, in the United States. And I, again, I think that's, you, you can think about like, why would a liberal commentator who wants to be a good anti-racist, but also loves making money, why would they be uncomfortable <laughs> talking about this connection and why they would have some investment in trying to separate racism from the capitalist class system, right? They don't want to talk about that. They don't want to talk, like Nike doesn't want to talk about it, <laughs> I assume. The M- NBA doesn't want to talk about it. But this specific argument about the relationship between race and class is not just about which variable is more important. It's about how did race as an ideology emerge out of the slave system? And this is a specific argument to the United States. But um, I, but but understanding this, and this is literature coming from um, the ones I've read, and you've, you're more far better read than me, is you know, Adolf Reed has a short gloss on this. The name we've talked about a lot on the show is Barbara Fields and Karen Fields' account of the rise of racism in U.S. history. And then that, that, that name actually is mentioned in the New York Times article and probably many other um, authors that I'm not aware of as well. But once I understood this historical argument, I think a lot of this other stuff made a lot more sense to me. And the race versus class debate just kind of seemed extremely silly. Right. No, for sure. I mean, if if we accept that race largely, not totally, but largely arose out of exploitative labor relations as an ideological tool to rationalize those labor relations post hoc, then I think you have to ask, is that still the case today? And if it is still the case today, absolutely. You uh if you are then if that then points you to scrutinize what you call the class system or capitalism or forget the economic stuff also political institutions in the united states that are very entrenched you can definitely see why people would rather go to the moralism and the individual soul cleansing approach to that rather than things that are actually taking place largely outside of, of people's heads so uh, right. you know you certainly um um you know i certainly see that that <laughs> that appeal uh um the one thing i want to say though is that there are cases i mean i think years ago i was i was i was uh lonely and watching youtube and looking at <laughs> at at perry anderson interviews of all things and and anderson as one does as yeah. one does and um Anderson quoted one of the Frankfurt people. I think it was Adorno. And he said that one time Adorno said something like, you know, with regards to anti-Semitism, if you just uh, open, uh, 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 look under the rock, you see capitalism. And and Mm -hmm. Anderson was saying, okay, maybe true sometimes, but sometimes anti-Semitism is just anti-Semitism. And yeah. it is, in fact, extra economic and extra political, and it's a sentiment. And yeah. I think it is absolutely true that sometimes racism, whether it's uh, anti-immigrant xenophobia, anti-blackness, it's often yeah. intermeshed with political institutions and capitalism but sometimes it is just what it is right right Right. you know i'm more interested i'm less interested in a declaration that white supremacy is this like kind of long 400 centuries thing i mean i if someone made that statement if a student of mine made that statement i wouldn't say 
quote unquote, you're wrong or something like that. But I think I might, I might, I might say something like, okay, but let's put a little texture on that. And yeah. let's, let's imagine a, a U.S. history timeline. Let's put white supremacy, if you want, as the kind of governing uh, overarching idea of this timeline. But then let's split this timeline up and, uh, yeah. and look at places where, the notion of white supremacy and the parallel notion of race and all the connotations you attach to it. Um, let's see how that changes over time. And then how would you, one, one caricaturization I think I've seen is someone would say like, well, like the, the, the Marxists of the world or the Reed and the fields of the world, they would say that once you solve for class differences, the racial differences will automatically disappear. And as we know from the new deal, or the great society that when you had universal programs before, there were still these racial gaps. And that's why, for instance, a Bernie Sanders style, you know, Medicare for all program doesn't solve racism, right? I mean, this is an argument that's been floating out there. How would you, um, what's your what's your gut response when you hear something like that? My gut response is that uh, uh, I, it's not wrong. Like a lot of, <laughs> a lot of racial discrimination is not always anchored in capitalism. I mean, when yeah. I mean, you and I know we we teach students who are still kind of learning about this stuff, and you can always, you know, occasionally you'll encounter a student who is learning about Marxism or, or at least economic equality for the first time, and starts to anchor everything, every social phenomenon in that. And, yeah, uh, uh, you know, that might still be me, but <laughs> <laughs> right. So uh, you know, but I. No one is denying that uh, anti yeah. that that f whether it's due to racial ideology or uh, the Jim Crow order or very dominant f uh, racist narratives that became very entrenched in the 19th century, early 20th century South that yeah. that will that off that that had a, an effect on how those programs were carried out. Uh, from below and sometimes yeah. you can connect that to capitalist imperatives but sometimes uh, uh, you can't and yeah that's what I that's 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 the big question to what extent do you think there are ways there are, there are th this this other framework we've we've come up with right uh, as a legit as a racism as legitimation how does that help us have you thought about or have you had these conversations with Adolf about ways that this could apply to comparative cases of like let's say anti-latino racism anti-asian racism or even like asian anti-black racism which we've talked about on this show before um well i think to your point about uh the dangers of primordialism uh yeah. the, the primordialism being a school of thought that actually arises in the Cold War, that all of us in our brains just have this cognitive hatred of, of, of certain groups that are unlike us. Uh, yeah. Um, I think this, this approach actually uh, dispels a lot of that. Um, I'll give you one example. I became interested a number of years ago in the relationship between uh, Dominicans and Haitians. Um, okay. Because there is a primordial narrative that kind of just says these are two groups and they hate each other right and yeah. i'm sure you could actually pick up all collect narratives like this in localities throughout the united states like yeah. if we could go to los angeles right, and right. you know asian Koreans and black, exactly yeah. or asian groups with each other right uh, right uh what this what this group what this 
Um, I read a book by a guy named Richard Turritz um, about about the history of the Dominican uh, Republic in the 20th century. And he was trying to dispel the notion that this is just this kind of timeless, uh, mm-hmm. this, this, this timeless quality that both of these groups had or that Dominicans in particular were just anti-Haitian from the jump. And what he does is a very kind of careful analysis of border politics and shows mm-hmm. how the border politics really gave rise slowly but surely to uh, uh, the sorts of narratives that we're familiar uh, with with, when it comes to Dominicans and Haitians. And he makes very clear this is not some timeless thing. It wasn't something that was always around. It resulted from very specific circumstances. And then those specific circumstances gave rise to a story, uh, a rationalization, a narrative, an ideology, if you will, um, that that then we all kind of just take for granted, but we really should. So I think I I found that the cross national work is is quite interesting. What about you? Like, uh, as somebody who studies China, right? There have been some kind of clumsy attempts with uh, with discussions about Uyghurs or Tibet to to take what I what I find to be (laughs) American racial concepts and American ways of seeing race. And and I found that they've been kind of clunkily imported uh, uh, and imposed on China. What do you think about that? Yeah, and, and we should also probably mention here that the other thing that gets litigated a lot on Twitter these days is this concept of racial capitalism, which I don't know. I think you and I probably, uh, how do we put this? We don't want to reject it necessarily, but we think that the way it gets talked about is the sort of like almost a historical way of thinking about race, like racism predates capitalism, and therefore that it's almost like this kind of endless like which came first, racism or capitalism debate that might not be that productive, but one example a lot of, I think people have tried to begin to point to is like, well, is China, does China have racial capitalism? Uh, they're all Han Chinese, so no. And then now we have the last few years, a lot of the news about Xinjiang and the Uyghurs, and now people are saying this proves racial capitalism, right? Because capitalism is still premised upon some racial difference. And I think, A, like statistically, it's still true that like 90% of China identifies as Han Chinese. On the other hand, you could say like Han Chinese is made up just like white is made up. Yeah. But I actually kind of think we've talked about this on a previous episode about dedicated to the Uyghurs where I di- I, where the, you know, our guest Darren Byler, his explanation of what's going on in Xinjiang actually, in my mind, strengthened my conviction that the sort of field read argument is true in the sense that I think in the 80s, the, the way it was discussed was in the 80s and 90s, there was always a sense of difference, right? These people are different. They're Muslim. They come from Central Inner Asia. They're not Han Chinese. But there wasn't the sense of, like, we are incompatible, like water and oil, right? And then it was only through this process of trying to develop the region and kind of finding, re- quote-unquote, recalcitrance among the local population. And the local population, um, perhaps, uh, what's the word, like, you know, feeling feeling really bullied and perhaps turning to religion and religious identity as some sort of resistance to this to the state and to these outsiders coming into their territory, that kind of led to this sort of cycle where we wind up today with a real perception of racial difference that these people are totally different, totally different religion. This religion is dangerous. We have to squash this religion. You know, they use the sort of counter terrorist language that the United States had in, in terms about Muslims, right? And 
um, so racial difference has actually been intensified. It wasn't the premise of capitalism in the region or premise of the relationship of Xinjiang people and Chinese people. Racial difference was in, was intensified through specifically um, a project of trying to develop the region and trying to turn Xinjiang people into not necessarily workers, but they were certainly like the underclass relative to the Han Chinese companies and and merchants who are coming into the region. So in my mind, that this is so this is why I find this theory really useful because I think in all sorts of situations, it's not going to work the identical. Like you're not going to have chattel slavery in every situation um, across the centuries. But if you think about the way that capitalism is premised upon sort of strict relations of, you know, one, one, one owns the capital, one works for the capital, or one works for the wages, um, that, and oftentimes that does reinforce racial hierarchies. And in the United States context, this is something I found interesting. People have taken that framework that Reed and, and Fields have, have made, I believe, like sort of the Marxist framework, and try to show a lot of anti-Chinese racism is probably similar to anti-Semitism mm. in the sense that now it's the, the white Christian who is in the position of the exploited, uh, victimized worker, mm. and it's the Jewish moneylender capitalist, or, or right. more, more recently, right, the Chinese TikTok multinational corporation that is exploiting and victimizing the poor the poor white christian population right so it's almost it's a it's certainly an it's, it's racist it's discriminatory but it's kind of reversing the terms yeah it's inverted it's very right, right it's reversed yeah, of, yeah right of anti-black racism but yeah. i mean this is where white supremacy i guess makes sense because they're always the center of the story they're always the victim. <laughs> but, that's right but but in a way but i think that you know that like there's a real difference obviously between anti-semitism and anti-black racism and and I think if you just stick to white supremacy as your, you know, white fragility as your framework for the world, you completely miss that. Um, right. I, I agree. I mean, I think at most it's square one when we need to encourage analyses that get people to square 50 at least. And, and I think yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think the worst part about this, I mean, I'm in a fantasy basketball league and we've just <laughs> we've discussed white fragility sometimes. And some some <laughs> some defenses of it have been that, you know, it's it's like a gateway drug. Like it's not the most sophisticated analysis. It's excessively individualistic, but it can at least help people shed some of the bad racist ideology and at least put them on a path to more sophisticated analysis. But yeah, I'm wary of that. I think a lot of people like to just stop at the moral yeah. individual analysis and don't want to think about these other forces that, uh, yeah. that contribute either to racial inequalities or to racial racist sentiments. And yeah. and so I worry actually it's the pit stop and <laughs> that's it. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the thrust of a lot of your research, your work, which is to say that when people hear, oh, we just need more context, they don't think of that as like, they don't think there's a real... What's the word? There's no real like mutual exclusivity. There's no reason you can't just keep adding more context. It doesn't sound like it's a real uh, problem. But what you're saying is there's an active harm that happens. There's a real ideological attachment to not learning context, to staying at the individual and the psychological and the ahistorical understanding of race that will actively prevent people from 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 taking in context and you know, and we've kind of alluded before, there's perhaps a class investment in not thinking about the context, because if they learn about the reason racism exists, they would also threaten their own material interests, like they themselves are a, 
you know, probably exploitative capitalists themselves, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, they're, they're a CEO of a company and they don't want to think about how capitalism produces racism. They just want to say Black Lives Matter and um, get, you know, get on with 2020, you know? Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Time to say goodbye. Poesy can 